Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're, welcome to our Friday morning sessions. Uh, time flies, really is. Uh, yesterday, you, you, you may not uh, remember exactly, but yesterday was the, a year ago, was the day that uh, the first case of, of COVID-19 was diagnosed here in the US. Uh, little did we know at that time, you know, what would happen over the ensuing year. It's been a tremendously difficult year for everyone. Uh, I, and I don't want to minimize that in any form, way or shape, uh, but there is hope. Uh, this, I was just reading uh, before coming here, the, the number of vaccines that have been administered in the US, about 15.1 million, which is uh, not enough, but it's 15.1 million citizens that have received their first dose, uh, which uh, would not have received the first dose without science and ingenuity and moving forward. So there is hope. And I think we will continue to go uh, with the new administration in place. I understand there that the goal is to get 100 million doses over the next 100 days, and hopefully we'll beat that. I think some of you logged into Dr. Fauci's press conference yesterday with a sense of optimism and moving forward with uh, new uh, regulations that are going to help us all. And, and so I think uh, uh, I do believe this is a new day moving forward. Now, having said that, we, we uh, have lost uh, 410,000 of our fellow citizens here in the United States of, of America and uh, over 2.1 million throughout the world. So that is a sobering reminder that we have to stay focused and, and keep moving forward. Now, uh, these sessions, I think, serve uh, two purposes. One, <clears throat> one is to update all of you on, on the most recent uh, and up-to-date information of COVID-19. And John uh, has done a tremendous job keeping us updated and all the guests we have brought in, including Dr. Ovid, who was here uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It also brings additional folks who help us with, with uh, all the side effects and all the elements that are associated with COVID-19. And today we will have Dr. Mel Collins. Uh, I have known Mel for a long time. She was a, a medical student here at the University of Connecticut and, and then moved on and did her entire career here and has stayed as a faculty member. And Mel is a is, uh, is a force of nature, I call her. And uh, her, you know, she's uh, one of the top experts in the country with uh, newborn screening for cystic fibrosis. And our program is uh, tops in the nation, uh, a lot because of her commitment to doing things with excellence. Uh, but she knows a lot about respiratory disease. And I think you'll see in her uh, talk about before, between and beyond COVID-19 that we'll, we have learned a lot and we will learn some more. So I'm gonna ask both uh, John and Mel to take it on and hopefully we'll have some good questions at the end and we'll, we'll see you again at, at, at the end with, with my questions uh, for all of you. So take care and uh, John, go ahead. Good morning, uh, Connecticut and uh, the rest of New England. Um, there's a lot to cover today on COVID updates and uh, like uh, Juan, I was thrilled uh, yesterday afternoon to uh, hear Dr. Fauci say that he will now speak science but you, you and I know that we've always done that on this particular talk. So um, I'm, I'm glad Dr. Fauci's catching up on his ability to speak honestly. It's terrific. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, I, I have, you know, as usual, good, bad, and uh, and uh, ugly or weird to share with you. But the sad at the moment is COVID-19 is ramping up very quickly to become among the leading cause of death in the United States. And um, in this table uh, from JAMA, I don't know, a week or so ago, they show you um, the various deaths, uh, causes of death, heart disease uh, and cancer being the top. And you'll see that uh, particularly among the elderly that COVID-19 is catching up very quickly uh, to be number two and in some cases, number one. So, uh, you know, it's a sobering thought as we hit 500,000 um, 
deaths. Next, please. Now, uh, the surges generated by our holiday travel are leveling out, and I, I think this is terrific news. I'm going to temper it later by some new developments that may unfortunately uh, allow this to increase again. But I, I would go out on a limb a little bit to say that I think we've just about peaked out. Um, we had 300,000 new cases a day for a while. It's now in the 200s. and, and um, I'm hoping that with good public health compliance and perhaps more consistency from our national leaders that we will continue to see this level out and maybe even decline. So tentatively some good news, uh, although there's certain states that are um, rocketing up right now, overall nationally we're leveling out. Next. Uh, now the hospitalizations ditto, we got up to about 150,000 or more COVID patients in the hospital, California, uh, Arizona, and uh, some Rhode Island actually hit particularly badly, but that's also leveling out. Um, and again, good news, because if this kept going up in the trajectory it was, the medical system nationally would have been overwhelmed. So this is something that everyone uh, needs to watch carefully, and, and hopefully the new administration uh, understands this. Uh, I think they do, and um, this will be very important to keep this at a manageable level. Next. Unfortunately, you know, deaths, as we know, lag um, uh, the new cases. So the death rate's been hitting 4,000 a day, which is just boggles the mind. And again, I, I say this every time, but, um, and actually among our faculty now, uh, personal loss, uh, but each one of these people is a person and had a family and loved ones. And, and it's not just a statistic. And these are just, if you remember the shock we felt when 9-11 happened and three or 4,000 people were killed in a day. And we're doing that daily now. So, you know, it's important for all of us to, I think, um, think about this. And I appreciate it certainly uh, in the new administration coming in some focus on the loss of life because it is what needs to guide us. And, uh, and we need to sort of get our arms around that. I'm optimistic as well, if we can flatten the new cases then the death rate's gonna to begin to decline. So again, I have some optimism that we may have seen the peak. Next. Now, Connecticut uh, is showing similar results. It's a little, a little variable because I think it's a reporting issue. It comes up and down. One day we had thousands of cases, the next less. But overall, we had that peak you can see in the pink line after the holiday travel and that seems to be leveling out. And you can see the same thing in the deaths. Um, so I'm hopeful that if we can continue managing um, uh, the public health behavior we need to manage in Connecticut, that we'll, we will have seen our peak in the next week or so. I'm optimistic, but I can't prove it. Next week, we'll look at the data and, and we'll see whether I was right or wrong on that. Next. And, and if, you, if you remember back, actually, we had a few counties that were worse than this. And so we've improved um, and the test positivity is ranging between six and 8%. It's going down a little bit. Um, and you can see Fairfield's gotten a little bit better, but we're still the Eastern part of the state has serious community spread as does Hartford and New Haven County. So we have problem in Connecticut still, but um, it seems to be leveling out and even improving a little bit. So a lot of community spread, be cautious, but I'm optimistic we may be hitting the peak late January. Next. 
Uh, and you can see this reflected in the Connecticut COVID hospitalizations, which shot up uh, disastrously in December and early January and are now drifting downwards. So our ICUs right now, although busy, have capacity. This is really important. And uh, again, I'm optimistic. Um, I'm positive the governor and others are looking at this and everyone's trying to make sure that we can keep this uh, in, in, a, in a tolerable level. So, and then immunization will roll through and, and hopefully this could uh, be solved uh, come summer. So um, this is overall, I'm giving you a little bit of an optimistic assessment today on where Connecticut is. Next. And here's an interesting, these are new data I, they've been gathering at the DPH of Connecticut looking at the deaths and, and where they are. And it's pretty interesting. Um, there's been very few deaths from the zero to 19 age group. You can count them on one hand. You can see that it's quite remarkable. But when you, in the 40s, I mean, 100 people in Connecticut have died in their 40s from COVID, over 300 in their 50s, and then it rockets up, almost 1,000 in their 60s, 70s, and then 4,000, 80 and above. So the um, mortality holds true to what our initial impressions were, is that uh, particularly fatality is concentrated age 40 and above. So very interesting. We do not fully understand this yet. I'm going to show you some other data that, that's interesting. It might begin to help explain this. Um, but uh, th these are the uh, spreads by age of Connecticut deaths. Next. Now, New York State, um, those of you, for some reason, if it appears green on the Connecticut DPH site, uh, you know, the reality is there were 15,000 new cases a day in New York. And uh, it's, it's as red as any other state, uh, ditto New Jersey, Rhode Island. So any travel right now to any state, uh, there's widespread community spread and, and um, you know, 15,000 cases that might be leveling out in New York state, but it's a huge number of new cases. It's focused in, in some areas up, up in the Rochester and then focused uh, down in the city as well. Long Island is pretty bad. So, you know, New York State really the same, it should be used the same caution traveling there as you would anywhere else. Next. Now, Texas um, is a particularly in trouble state um, and it's an enormous state with a huge population. I think it's like 9% of the United States lives there. It's quite remarkable. Um, and they have 20, 30,000 new cases a day. And uh, the death rate has not peaked out in Texas yet. It's uh, four, four or 500 a day. And so this is driving some of the national data. It's just such a large number. Um, next. And it's an enormous state. And the problem is um, it's very variable. There's some parts of the state where there's very little COVID up near Amarillo. Um, and then if you go on the Tex-Mex border, Houston and Dallas, it's quite bad. There's a lot of community spread. And that's where most of the people live in Texas. So um, the state is going to need to, you know, double down and try to get on top of this. And it's a very um, large state where there's been resistance to uniform public health measures. So uh, we have to watch this because like California, Texas is driving a lot of the national statistics. Next. And what's new um, with the virus? And, and there's a lot new. And, and uh, if you can go to the next slide, please. Um, now, there is a raging controversy, as you know, we're going to hear about this, I think, in the next couple of weeks, again, with our cardiovascular team. But the issue of what to do um, with competitive athletes who get COVID and uh, 
do they need to get EKGs and MRIs and this and that? And, and what's the risk? And, and honestly, there's controversy. And um, this was a new paper that just came out in JAMA Cardiology last week. And they followed 145 student athletes who got COVID, who had mild to moderate symptoms, not severe COVID. And then they did cardiac MRI on everybody. It's, you know, like, what, let's see what happens. And, let's, and so they only found two patients who had MRIs consistent with myocarditis, which is around one and a half percent. So you know, I was reassured by this that it's <clears throat> perhaps in mild to moderate cases, not as rampant as we had worried. But as I said, there's a lot of controversy here. There's been some uh, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics and different cardiology groups have come out with different recommendations, Yale and others. And so we have to watch as the data come back. I think we'll be able to fine tune our follow-up of children who've had COVID better. But right now I found this reassuring. Uh, myocarditis in mild cases in competitive athletes was very unusual. Next. Now, why are we getting sick after immunization? And, and this fascinated me. And I, I, um, I told Juan this, you know, I got immunized a week or so ago and, and I uh, tolerated the first, um, uh, I didn't even feel it. The second uh, immunization, I was quite sick for about 12 hours and then woke up and I was better. And why would that be? It was obviously cytokines. And, and all that happened, if you think about it, is um, our, my cells were hijacked temporarily, so they made spike protein, and I my immune system responded to that. Now, spike protein is just a protein. It's not LPS. It's not, you know, gram-negative rods that would make you sick. And why would the presence of spike protein make you sick? And in fact, if you think about it, why are people getting cytokine storms with this disease when they get severe COVID. Well, it turns out, and this has actually been confirmed now, there's a paper from China that is in preprint, I believe, um, just came out and the spike protein uh, activates toll-like receptor four. Now, you may remember, to get some basic immunology, if you go to the next slide, that we really have two arms of our immune system. We have the innate immune system so that that fights off foreign things without any memory. So like gram-negative rods have LPS and our, our innate immune system recognizes that. You make cytokines to try to fight off whatever that is. And then later on, a few weeks later, you make antibodies and you get memory and that's the uh, acquired immune system. So it's different. Now the toll-like receptors are receptors that are made to bind certain foreign antigens and create that cytokine response as the part of the innate immune system. And some viruses, activate toll-like receptor 4, and, and, uh, but many don't. And toll-like receptor 4 is the classic receptor for LPS. And if you see that um, if spike protein binds to toll-like receptor 4, you're going to get some of the same physiologic effects <clears throat> you get from LPS, and you know, which is the gram-negative sepsis syndrome, which is sort of what we're seeing. So this is just the pathway. You bind uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is binding to toll-like receptor four and CD14 is a co-molecule receptor. And then there's a pathway with an F-kappa B and you make a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines and interferons. And so um, this is now being thought as one of the ways that just the spike protein itself uh, is immunogenic in the innate immune system. So there's a lot of work going on this right now because if we can understand this better, we could interfere better with the pro-inflammatory response. And this may also play a part in MISI. Um, there are polymorphisms in toll-like receptor four, depending on your genetics. And it's possible that some toll-like receptors four don't respond as much to spike protein as others do. And this is very active research right now. And I think we are gonna get to the bottom of this. And 
again, one of the silver linings as you watch this terrible pandemic is the ingenuity and science. We have the best tools in the history of science to really apply to this problem and what we're learning and how we're trying to, to, to really create solutions to this is quite remarkable. And again, that, you know, someday when we look back, I think there'll be a celebration of the intellect and science that went into solving this problem. But this is very important. It's why I got sick after the second dose. So, um, uh, and you know, now I only lasted a few hours because the spike protein after immunization is only in your body for a day or so, and then it's cleared out. So. Uh, this is fascinating. Stay tuned and watch. I think we're going to figure out the answers of all of this inflammation in the next six months. Next. And um, it, by the way, just the next slide, um, the spike protein, these are immortalized human cell line that have toll-like receptor four, and they make uh, cytokines if the toll-like receptor is stimulated. And if you throw in the spike protein, you can see in the graphs, the top A graph, you get a response very similar to LPS. So it's very immunoreactive protein. And, and, you know, I'm not sure we knew this six months ago, but it is. So uh, fascinating. Stay tuned. Next. Now, another drug, ivermectin. It's going to cure SARS-CoV-2, right? It's out in there in Facebook. My uncle on Facebook told me it's true. Um, well, it's interesting. In vitro, ivermectin inhibits COVID-2 replication. This just came out. Um, literally, oh, this came out like six months ago, but it, 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 the, the um, clinical use of it has been coming out over the last few weeks and everyone, you know, ivermectin, it's sort of the new um, uh, hydroxyquinine type thought about this is going to be another miracle drug. Now, uh, unfortunately, much like um, hydroxychloroquine, next, if you can go to the net, yeah, there are no randomized controlled data. And oh, I'm sorry, don't, if you want to go back to that, please. Thank you. So unfortunately, what's happened in Latin America, for example, is um, everyone's getting ivermectin. So we have no idea if it works. And it's, it's very similar to the hydroxychloroquine study. If we can get a randomized controlled trial, we'll be able to figure out if in fact the in vitro data have any relation to clinical results. And you will remember that hydroxychloroquine also had some in vitro anti-SARS-CoV-2 activity, but it turned out not to work. So, but this is out there. You're going to get asked this. I've been asked five times in the last week, what about ivermectin? And so no data. In vitro, it does something. But once again, you know, I would not recommend it. Next. Now, why are we getting allergic reactions to the mRNA vaccines? Very active work on this. And you'll see if the picture there, um, the, the, it's unlikely that it's the RNA. In fact, it's not the RNA. But you can see there's a polyethylene glycol lipid capsule, nanocapsule that surrounds the RNA to keep it stable while it comes into your body. And most everyone thinks that the immediate hypersensitivity reactions that we are seeing are related to that. Um, and, and there's very active work going on. This, by the way, shows you the pathway. The RNA comes in. It's taken up by the ER of an antigen processing cell, most likely uh, that's the cells. And then uh, it's translated into spike proteins and then you make an immune response to it. And now there's also some delayed hypersensitivity that's been seen where, you know, a week later, there's still urticaria and, um, and some redness. In fact, I just saw a case uh, with Dr. Salazar of this uh, this week. And, um, and that's uncertain as to what's going on with that. And again, um, it may be components of the lipid nanoparticle that are still there. They last a little bit longer. 
um, in your body than the RNA, which is gone very quickly and the spike protein gone within three days. So a lot of work on this, but most likely the immediate hypersensitivity is related to the PEG2000 lipid nanoparticle. And there's uh, research going on by both vaccine companies to determine uh, how they might change the nanoparticle to reduce allergic reactions. Next. And um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the adenovirus 26 vaccine, um, their interim results that were just published in the New England Journal, looks quite good. These are the side effects of low dose, high dose, and placebo, and it's very similar. And you would expect it because as I showed you, spike protein. So myalgias and fatigue and headache um, and all of the same things we're seeing with the RNA vaccines, they're transient uh, and seem to go away quite quickly. So, so these are the interim results showing the adverse events from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which seem very similar to the RNA vaccines. Next. And remember, I showed you last week, the, these are an adenovirus vector that's non-replicative. that contains DNA encoding um, the sequence that's inserted into your cell. And then that DNA is made into RNA. And then the RNA is transcribed and reverse is, is transcribed to RNA. And then the um, RNA is translated to the spike protein. So there's an extra step compared to this, the RNA vaccines. These are um, the virus neutralization assays showing placebo, which didn't do anything, of course. And then there's a low dose and high dose J&J &J vaccine. And you can see um, this vaccine's a little more immunogenic after one dose. Um, and uh, you can see in the high dose, uh, the first, uh, on the, on the high dose, the, the first uh, immunization gives you pretty good neutralization titers and they go even higher with the second dose. So there's some optimism that this vaccine after one dose may have a larger impact than the 50% um, efficacy uh, after one dose for the RNA vaccines, but we do not have those clinical data yet. The clinical trial data have not been reported, at least I haven't seen it. And I, I know the FDA may be seeing some of those data, but there's been no hearing. We haven't seen all of that stuff yet. So it's very promising. There may be a third vaccine available that's a little more immunogenic after one dose. Stay tuned. Next. Now, uh, this is where I get into the ugly um, in the talk today. So it's now been shown that the South African mutant, I showed you last week, there are two mutants, the UK mutant, and then E484, which you can see um, on the spike protein here, that red area, um, that is a very important part of the ACE2 receptor binding domain for the uh, spike protein. And it looks like, unfortunately, um, that this mutation renders antibodies made from convalescent sera from people who had a different strain than this, less effective for neutralization, actually significantly less effective. So next. These are very preliminary data. A few people, they, they took their blood after they had COVID and then they, it's not been subject to peer review yet. Um, and you can see if you have 484 and that you can see down on day 26 on the, my lower left, the, um, there's a lot um, less uh, neutralization. And um, ditto on the top where it says day 32, actually a higher number there under the E484 means um, less neutralization. So more likely to evade neutralization. So this is a problem. And um, if it were me, I would have banned all travel to South Africa right now. And I would be surveying for this very aggressively because this is a problem. The good news is with the new technologies and particularly the RNA technologies, and this has already been 
uh, I don't think you'd have to repeat a clinical trial if you tweaked the RNA and the RNA vaccine to accommodate this mutation. So, you know, if you take it in stride, this could be very much like influenza where annually we'll have to have a retool vaccine that catches these mutants. And, uh, and we, we will manage it and we'll take care of it, but the current um, vaccines may need to be modified if this mutation spreads. So stay tuned, this is gonna be very important because um, we don't want this to happen. Now, uh, the other thing I didn't mention is the UK mutant mutation is in the United States. It's much more contagious uh, than regular COVID um, by about increasing the R value by 0.7, I think they said, which is a lot. So we may have another peak based on the UK strain circulating because it's more contagious. If it happens, it happens. The good news for the UK strain is that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine um, antibodies generated after immunization neutralize that virus. It's not a problem. So the vaccines will work for that. But I do think it could cause a secondary peak we might see in the coming weeks, which, which um, is unfortunate. This one, however, the vaccines may have a problem with. So keep watch on this, the South African mutation 484. Next. All right. So the good, the bad, and the weird, and that's the, that's the good, the bad, the weird in Korean, Dr. Salazar. I'm not running out of languages yet. Um, and that won the, one of the Cannes Film Festival Awards, by the way. The USA epidemic, I think, is showing signs of flattening that could be reversed by the UK mutation. But right now, I think we're seeing signs of some flattening. There is a new national immunization strategy being rolled out by the administration that's more centralized and will have federal funds, I think that shows promise in accelerating vaccination, which we need. Uh, unfortunately, the new projections show we are gonna hit 500,000 deaths. Um, and uh, you know, uh, all of us need to um, really understand uh, that this is uh, one of the big tragedies in American history. I mentioned to you that the UK strain is spreading in the US. We may have another resurgence as the UK did because of the strain, but the vaccine protects against it. And that means we need to accelerate immunization. The South African 44 mutant may evade current vaccines. Uh, we, we need to be very aggressive about this and we may need to require new formulations next year. And we've done this before for influenza. We'll see what happens. And in the weird category, Florida opened immunization to all 65 year olds, but they forgot to mention that you needed to be a resident. So you didn't. And so there were hundreds and hundreds of tourists lining up after Disney World, they would line up to get immunized. So now Florida is cracking down on this, but uh, it just shows a, a perhaps a um, thought process that didn't really think through what you needed to do there. So uh, the good, the bad, and the weird of, of early 2021. I'm really looking forward to, for, uh, for Mel to talk to us about respiratory virus season, which is so changed from what it usually is. And uh, thanks again, I look forward to your questions. Thank you, John, and uh... yeah. Thank you, uh, John, for the great presentation, uh, for the good, the bad, and the weird. Uh, I love that. Uh, we'll see how many more languages you can come up with. Uh, Mel, go ahead and uh, give us your presentation. Oh, Dr. Collins, you're on mute. Sorry about that.
Uh, thanks to Dr. Schreiber and Dr. Salazar for inviting me to present today. When I agreed to do this talk back in the fall, I was told it would be helpful to provide the community with options of making a COVID diagnosis that did not require testing and could help kids with regular seasonal respiratory viruses continue to attend school. And back in the th fall, I found myself thinking, no problem, we are really getting to the bottom of COVID. But now in January, I found myself struggling to achieve that request. However, in my newfound quest to innovate and create in the face of COVID, I did find one method that could potentially detect COVID immediately. But before we dive into innovation and creativity, let's review the objectives. Today, I'm going to introduce a novel method of COVID-19 diagnosis, review the typical seasonality of common respiratory viral infections, discuss pulmonary outcomes after COVID-19 infection, and provide tips for optimizing asthma management during COVID. In an article published in the open access journal PILOS, Grandjean et al. examined COVID-positive individuals in five hospitals, four in France, one in Lebanon. Patients were identified as COVID positive via PCR or RT-PCR. And here's the innovative part. The researchers were determined to confirm if dogs could be used to detect COVID-19 in these individuals. The studies used axillary sweat samples obtained from the patients who were excluded if they had received medical treatment for the prior 36 hours due to the fact that the smell could uh, confuse the dogs. 14 dogs started training and six dogs were ready at the time that the samples were obtained and moved forward. There were five Belgian Malinois and one Jack Russell. It took only 21 days to train these dogs and they had a success rate of 76 to 100%. So keeping this in mind, I'd like to introduce a new team member to Connecticut Children's. This is Leo. He works for treats or cuddles. He has an incredible joyful greeting for all people. He is able to detect peanut butter at 40 feet. He does not require PPE and he is CDC certified not to carry COVID-19. Unfortunately, Leo does require more than 21 days to train. Now, most families have traditions, special events that they relish and enjoy together. And in pulmonary medicine, we have a tradition too. We call it respiratory season. In contrast to the fun-filled holiday memories that most traditions inspire, we live the other six months in fear of the wonderful six months of respiratory season. Back to school means back to human metanumovirus and paraflu. Halloween provides a welcome kickoff for the now known as friendly coronaviruses, transitioning nicely around Thanksgiving to RSV and influenza season. We struggle through the holiday season, taking bets as to which one will be worse, RSV or flu. And as you finally enter March, mistakenly believing that everything will be okay, parainfluenza virus three rears its ugly head. And all throughout the year, we can always rely on rhino and adeno to set a steady stream of asthmatics to the emergency department. To begin, I'm gonna delve a little deeper into the category of seasonal viruses with influenza. I actually like the flu. You can vaccinate, you could give Tamiflu, and it's been around more than 100 years, so we have a little bit more experience with the flu. After this year, I've started to think of the flu as a friendly virus, which may be a sign that I've actually hit rock bottom. But take a look at these two graphs. 
These two graphs are from the CDC website and they merge the percent positivity of influenza from 2019 through 2020. The blue bars represent the one year period. I placed a mark at 30% positivity and 5% positivity as the axis has shifted um, over the last year due to the sharp decline in seasonal influenza virus infections. Influenza A is in yellow and influenza B is in green. As you can see, after the shutdown began, the percent positivity of influenza sharply declined and it has continued to decline um, abnormally so throughout the current influenza season. So as you see, mask wearing, social distancing, and perhaps seasonal influenza immunization have significantly decreased the rate of infection. But there still must be other viruses out there, right? Well, not exactly. These graphs are from the CDC website in the National Respiratory and Enterovirus Surveillance System. Paraflu is on the upper left, Corona the upper right, Metanuma on the lower left, and RSV on the lower right. I have again used the red bars to show the percent positivity for all four viruses. As you can see, there has been a shark, sh sharp decline for all of the four respiratory virus. Note that the typical seasonal prevalence of influenza and RSV is nearly erased. RSV decreasing from 15% last year at this time to less than 2% and influenza decreased from 30% to less than 5%. In speaking with Jen Gerardo, Connecticut Children's is no different. We have not isolated any RSV or flu based on her access to the data, which is consistent with the rest of Connecticut. The main viruses we have seen on our inpatients are rhino and enterovirus with low numbers of seven to 12 per month. And of course, a couple of adenoviruses thrown in there as well. So again, in trying to answer the question of what virus could my patient have, look at this graph which shows the increasing prevalence of coronavirus among hospitalized zero to 18 years old. As the sharp contrast between these sets of graphs demonstrate, the main virus in our community is COVID. The data has it. Currently in a symptomatic patient, the overwhelming likelihood is that they have COVID regardless of symptom severity. But how does this decrease in typical respiratory viral infections and increase in COVID truly impact our patients? My former colleague, Tregany Simino, published data from Boston Children's Hospital in the December 4th, 2020 Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Her retrospective study analyzed patients with asthma visits to the ED at Boston Children's in the years 2018, 2019, and 2020. She demonstrated significantly fewer number of visits after the shutdown in 2020 by about 80%. The graph above represents our Connecticut children's data. The yellow, the blue line is 2019 and the red line is 2020 with patients, individual patients shown in yellow and purple, just to show you that it's not the same five kids coming to the emergency room constantly. As you see, our data is similar, but more pronounced with visits dropping by 87% from 2019, two weeks after shutdown and a continued decline in the spring. This difference is likely exaggerated by an additional factor, which we all need to be aware of for our patients with chronic respiratory disease, which is spring and fall allergy seasons were much more severe in 2019 than they were in 2020. Overall, our visit numbers have remained low despite the return to school in the fall and the reemergence of what we used to call respiratory viral season. 
Dr. Simino's group did not look at admissions, but I took the liberty of looking at our admissions from 2019 to 2020. As you can see in a typical respiratory virus season, we can have anywhere from about 30 to 50 patients admitted monthly with asthma exacerbations. However, this year, we've seen hardly 50% of that volume. The number one trigger for children is viral respiratory tract infections. Without that asthma trigger, we are seeing a significant decrease in visits across our ED inpatient and outpatient areas. This is great for our patients, but may instill false complacency about the severity of their disease and lead to non-adherence to care, placing them at risk for admission or adverse events when they do contact a respiratory virus or other trigger. Adherence to chronic respiratory care is critical during this pandemic period, because while we know that COVID affects the lungs currently, we are unclear on what the long-term damage may be. Will COVID be like RSV and rhinovirus that increase airway reactivity or like adeno that lead to bronchiectasis? The most information we have is a study in adults by Leal et al. from the UK that examined 837 patients hospitalized between February 2020 and May 2020 with SARS-CoV-2 and was published in this month's Annals of the American Thoracic Society. This single center prospective study looked at patients who had been hospitalized and used a phone assessment to call them four weeks later. 39% of patients had ongoing respiratory symptoms. They were then moved on to have pulmonary function testing, laboratory evaluation, and a chest X-ray. Abnormalities consisted of desaturation of greater than 4%, abnormal chest X-ray, and abnormal lung function. In those groups of patients, 59 to be exact, they were moved on to a CT scan of the chest. 66 of the patients who had an abnormal CT and restrictive physiology were identified. They had no improvement of symptoms, especially dyspnea after their discharge. These patients were treated with prednisolone at 0.5 mg per kg per dose with an average of 26.6 milligrams with a rapid wean over three weeks. 30 patients completed the therapy. Uh, five were, dis were not included because of other comorbidities that prevented them from taking the prednisolone. Uh, in the 30 patients who completed therapy, their breathlessness and lung function significantly improved. Their overall function significantly improved. There were no major drug complications. And the consensus of the interstitial lung disease group reviewing the CT scans was that there had been improvement. Now, while it remains unknown what the permanent changes SARS-CoV-2 infection causes to the lungs, this study shows that the use of oral steroids not only helps mitigate ongoing symptoms, but also improves lung function. Now, I've recognized that this is an adult study, but the paucity of information on lung disease and children with COVID, I feel that it is reasonable to consider using this regimen of oral steroids for patients with ongoing respiratory symptoms after COVID infection. Now, based on the data I showed earlier, it would seem that everyone's at home and doing well from a respiratory perspective in the world of pediatrics, but are they really? A study by Philip et al. investigated the concerns of people with lung disease regarding COVID. They surveyed 7,039 adults, 85% which had asthma. Now, kids aren't just many adults, but the themes expressed in these studies have rung true in my visits with patients throughout the last nine months. The six areas of concerns were optimization of lung health, limitation of infection risk, access to necessities, specifically, specifically medication and food. And in my case, I would add that children are worried about access to school and friends. 
They want to minimize the negative impact of disease if they should get it. They want to be provided up-to-date and consistent information from their personal healthcare provider, not just Dr. Fauci on TV. And they would like an improved government response. And I would just like to mention that this was a UK, not a US study. So what are my tips and tricks for asthma? Number one, telemedicine visits provide opportunities. You can review the actual medicine your patients are taking because they can run right over to the closet and grab it. You can review medication administration, which has been very eye-opening for all of us, especially in terms of the inhaler and spacer, as well as the nebulizers. It is also a really good time to review exposure with families because aeroallergens and ETS or vaping exposure can be significantly increased because children are not attending school full-time and parents are working from home. You can use this time to encourage continued adherence to routine daily medications despite lack of exacerbations, reinforce the need for mask wearing and social distancing, take time to discuss vaccination and have a discussion around mental health issues. Lastly, I think it's very important for us as healthcare providers to be humans with our patients and families and empathize with the current situation. I would also suggest consideration of quarterly visits. You can review aeroallergens, you can review the response to weather changes, you can encourage physical activity to avoid obesity, which is yet another severity risk factor in asthma, and you can establish documentation of asthma symptoms, which is very important because frankly, for me, the last nine months have just felt like one very long day and everything starts to blur together. And it's important to have documentation of triggers and exacerbations for your asthma patients. I would also consider lung function testing because it provides an objective measure of lung disease and it would also provide you an objective measure to wean therapy or not. It's really not fun to wean someone's asthma therapy and figure out that you are unsuccessful when they have a allergy or a viral induced triggered exacerbation. I would recommend getting lung function testing in a cardiopulmonary laboratory like the one we have at Connecticut Children's because there is a significant infection risk with performing lung function testing in patients with COVID. I would suggest providing routine and anticipatory refills. And I would strongly recommend considering 90 day supplies for families because it is so very difficult to get out of the house between home and work and everything occurring in one place. I would also recommend sending families at home to have oral corticosteroids as long as you feel it's a trustworthy family who would notify you if they use the medication. I would encourage use of MDIs with spacers versus nebulizer because there is less aerosolization of infected, infectious particles and with less exacerbations from seasonal respiratory viruses, this is a good time to optimize a patient's MDI and spacer technique. I would also highly recommend providing a retailed, written detailed asthma management plan. And it does not have to be a fancy one with red, yellow, green, and blue and all these different colors. It needs to be a plan that your families can understand in the mental state that they're in. Oh, oh sorry. And um, lastly, I would like to leave us with some words of encouragement. We are pediatricians. We are creative, innovative people. And I have come to think of COVID like I do babies. 
When they start out, they may be cute and adorable, in some cases incredibly difficult, but the future is uncertain. You cannot predict if they will turn out to be a little princess or a giant mess. COVID is this way. We are learning as we go and adjusting. In this vein, I would encourage you to continue to COVID test your patients with respiratory disease and acute symptoms. Knowing they had COVID may be crucial in understanding long-term changes on imaging and lung function testing. We are strong leaders and we can continue to do what we have always done, provide our patients and families with anticipatory guidance, encouragement, and innovative medical care as we continue to learn on this crazy journey. Thanks. Thank you, Mel. Uh, that was uh, simply outstanding as, as always uh, with your presentations. Uh, lots of great words of wisdom, really appreciate it. And, and John, thank you very much. We, we have a lot of questions. I don't think we'll get through all of them. Uh, many, many are COVID related, uh, but I do want to start with one, John, which I think is important to address. Um, and, and it's, here's the statement, and I think we need to really clarify this. Why are people dying after receiving vaccine? In the, in the news last week, 50 people have died. Um, I, first of all, I would say, I don't think people are dying after they receive the vaccine. Um, that's uh, probably not a general statement that would be correct. And if you look at the United States experience, um, literally millions uh, have received the vaccine and that would not be a correct statement. Now there is a small cohort in Scandinavia of extreme elderly where there were, was some mortality. I do not know the reason of that. I don't know the condition of those frail elderly, but they were quite frail and they were old. So um, I, I think that that begs the question of in extreme age and frailty uh, of what alternatives we could use where the vaccine might be uh, too aggressive. In fact, there's a study and probably, I think there'll be licensure for this very shortly of the monoclonals that could be given to extreme old frail and nursing homes and prevent COVID. And so I think we're gonna to transition to that in some of the very susceptible frail elderly, but I don't think that's a correct statement in the United States experience uh, where there literally been millions of immunizations without mortality would work against that statement. So I don't know Juan, if that's, if that's, uh, I, I believe that's factual, so. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's correct that this vaccine is causing deaths. I think that's completely incorrect. Uh, there's, a, you know, I've done a fair amount of search on this and, and there's nothing there that suggests uh, whatsoever that this vaccine would cause mortality. In the clinical trials, there, there were people in both placebo and the vaccine study where, you know, uh, I mean, people did die. There was, but, but if you look at any, when you have uh, over 80,000 people in trials, some of those individuals will have uh, events that uh, where they where results in mortality. One of them was a 65 year old who had, a, you know, three months after the vaccine had a heart attack and that's unrelated to the vaccine. And, and that can happen in the placebo. Also. So I just want to, I want to emphasize that it's, it is, uh, it, this vaccine is not associated with mortality. That's very, very important. We got to debunk those things which are not true. One, I, I completely agree. There was a small cohort in Norway where there was uh, some mortality in a nursing home, but the yeah. details of that and understanding the frailty and age of those people uh, and what other, to your point, what other factors they had, we don't know. So I completely agree. And again, the American data do not show any mortality whatsoever from the vaccine and it's millions of doses now. So, all right. Correct. All right, let's keep going. Um, in, uh, from Dr. Kroll, the, the counties in Texas that you showed that have, uh, you know, the, the, the really 
high uh, rates per 100,000. Uh, his point is that they also have the highest poverty rates. And so uh, I think the, the point here is the, the um, social determinants of health in the association with high rates. Comments on that, John? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very poignant comment. It's one which we've seen repeated all over the country uh, where uh, there's been higher mortality in uh, more diverse uh, populations who have overcrowding and poverty than there is in um, the populations where you can isolate in a single house in a single home. So I think this has been shown uh, all over the country, unfortunately, when you look at mortality in particular. Now, the Tex-Mex border is particularly poor, um, but you're also seeing in Dallas and Houston and other parts of Texas and in rural areas. So I do want to make the point, although it's um, uh, uh, definitely true, um, there are rural, less poor areas in the Dakotas, for example, that were severely hit by COVID. Uh, and that had to do with um, resistance against public health measures. So I, I totally agree, but I, I don't think it's isolated just to impoverished areas in the Tex-Mex border. I think it's in rural areas and it's all over the place now. There is no safe place. Thanks. Uh, Mel, uh, first of all, we, you're, you, the dog is hired. We, we we're happy to bring him into Connecticut Children's to do some COVID testing. Uh, but the, the next, oh, That was fantastic. Uh, but the question from, from Umit, your colleague, is uh, there are new asthma guidelines uh, could you comment on uh, on the best approach to changing? Maybe briefly, are there just maybe one or two things that change in the asthma guidelines that pediatricians should know? Yeah, so um, one of the changes in the asthma guidelines is looking at the use of sick plans and using an ICS lava instead of just an inhaled bronchodilator. Um, that is a big change. And one of the nice pieces of that is the ICS lava therapy uses an MDI and spacer instead of um, using a nebulized uh, medication. But I, I would actually, you know, I attended Dr. Cloutier's webinar. It's available on the NHLBI site and I thought it was outstanding. Um, I'm happy to come back another time and review all the updates to the NHLBI guideline. Our group is actually working on a consensus for ourselves next week, um, but it's a very interesting topic and it's a great 45 minutes. Uh, yeah, thanks, Mel. And we, we've actually invited Dr. Cloutier to give Grand Rounds in April. So be, oh, okay. uh, you know, she's going to give a whole hour on the new guidelines. And she's the, she's the key senior author in those guidelines. She worked very hard on those. So you're, you're, you're so good, uh, good segue to that. You can tell the guidelines were written very well. Yes, yes. Um, from uh, Connecticut Children's, and I believe others are seeing an increase in suspected and documented COVID-associated missing cases. This combined with the behavioral health surge has changed the demands of our healthcare. What should we do to anticipate to regard in regard to these changes? So John, is, is Missy, COVID, mental health, overall statement on, on how COVID is changing the way we do healthcare? Um, and I think first of all, as more kids got infected in Connecticut, and if you looked at the curves, the second wave really focused on younger people. And as more kids got infected, we knew we were going to see more Missy, and that's a national trend wherever there's a lot of kids who are infected. And, and I think, though, hopefully, as you saw, that's beginning to level out and go down, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll begin to see less. Um, yeah, I mean, behavioral health, uh, prior to COVID, uh, the ERs and, and uh, practices were seeing enormous amount of behavioral health issues in children, and it's something that we really didn't have the resources nationally to deal with. Um, and certainly that's been accentuated by COVID uh, where people are, you know, have to hunker down and, and uh, we've seen lots of behavioral health issues and we've, we've heard about it. We've had great people present uh, as um, 
partners uh, during this talk talking about behavioral health issues and resources available to families um, that are out there. So it is an issue. Um, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel as immunizations roll out uh, and we're able to ease up a bit. I think we're gonna have some uh, reduction in these crises. My hope is, however, that in the behavioral side, um, there's more attention to this nationally and that the resources and focus and lack of stigmatization on behavioral issues could become more widespread so we can manage it better as healthcare providers. Because right now, I think we're not given the optimal resources to do that on a national level for sure. Thank you, John. And I, we saw your dog, I think, was looking for COVID or smelling. Yeah, you know, my dog sniffing around. I, I, my dog heard Melanie's talk, and it's a German shorter pointer. Which trying to get a job at Connecticut Children's, I guess. That's what mom sniffing. So I'm a little concerned that she's now gotten the idea she's going to roam uh, looking for COVID. Thank you, Melanie, for having <laughs> my dog. Mel, this question is uh, is is for you, and uh, it's sort of. I think I'm going to roll two questions into one. So the question they're they're asking: How about your CF patients? How are they doing with COVID? And then, the, and then linked to that, um, uh, we're not seeing a lot of hospitalizations for asthma or ED visits. How are your patients doing in clinic, the, the, the ambulatory care management for asthma patients? Has it been easier, harder? So CF and asthma and COVID, just the general comments on that. Sure. So our cystic fibrosis patients have been doing incredibly well because they've been social distancing for decades. So mask wearing, hand washing, Purell are pretty much standard for CF patients. If you look nationally, though, the majority of CF patients do really well, even when they get COVID, and even if they're not as adherent to care as we would like them to be. And there are a number of theories regarding that, especially around the ACE2 receptor. For asthma patients, I would say that the majority of my asthma patients are still doing incredibly well. I think that the mask wearing and social distancing has really paid off with the lower number of respiratory viral triggers. I will tell you, it, I have been burned because I have a lot of families that tell me that their kid is doing so good, best ever, hasn't coughed in forever and they wean themselves off medications. I've had a couple of those kids get COVID and it's been disastrous. They've been hospitalized. They've needed long courses of oral steroids. They've needed oxygen. So I think the key is, is that just because you're not triggering the system does not mean that the asthma has gone back to normal. And that's why I really like the objective measures of lung function testing. If I can wean you off your inhaled medications, and your lung function tests don't change, I'm much more secure that your asthma is under well control. Um, but right now, I think people have to be patient and they have to stick to their chronic medications so that they're well positioned to heal and recover if they do um, come in contact with a trigger. Great, thank you, great advice. John, There, I'm gonna link three questions into one. Um, do we have an algorithm in Connecticut Children's uh, in terms of post-vaccine side effects and coming into work? That's the first one. And then related to that, there are at least two questions about the use of uh, either ibuprofen or Tylenol or acetaminophen pre-vaccine or post-vaccine. Can you, can you talk about yeah. those two? Well, let me answer that first. So I probably, I don't like to pre-treat for vaccines because non-steroidal anti-inflammatories theoretically could blunt your immune response. So we do not recommend pre-treating. And uh, so I wouldn't. I think uh, after you get the second dose of the vaccine, if you have aches and like I did muscle aches, whatever, you know, a dose of Tylenol or a couple of ibuprofen are highly unlikely to cause a problem. I wouldn't take them long-term right after immunization. So pre-treat, no. 
if you have significant symptoms and need to take some Tylenol, I, I think it's fine. I don't think it's going to affect anything. What was the um, first question, Juan? Uh, what uh, we have an algorithm for uh, oh. for managing post vaccine, and we can send that through the web. We do we have, actually, um, and, and thanks to Grace Hong and uh, and Ilana and our team who does algorithms. Uh, we have a, um, a terrific algorithm looking at vaccine um, uh, uh, side effects and when do you need to have people stay home? When do they come to work? And when does further workup required? So I think. Um, uh, in general, the vaccine side effects after the second dose have been mild and people are returning to work within 24 hours. So um, we, will put, we will post that. Um, I know Elizabeth and uh, Nicole will post that and everyone can take advantage of that algorithm. Uh, you'll link some other questions also. The, uh, how long should we wait if we've had COVID and we wanna get vaccinated? Uh, in general, the CDC gives you some wiggle room on that. We think after you've had COVID that you're immune for about 90 days, maybe a little bit longer, but 90 days has been what the CDC has chosen as a benchmark. So if you're immunized within 90 days of having COVID, that's good, you will be protected. We don't recommend getting immunized right in the immediate period of COVID where you're in recovery and you still don't feel well. And I think that would not be what we recommend. So if you've had COVID get better, it's in within 90 days, no problem. And then get your immunization after you're recovered from COVID. I do, there's one question there, um, Juan, I wanna answer, I see, and because there's been tremendous disinformation about vaccines right now, it's just the era we live in. There's a question there, uh, are there fetal tissues in the vaccines? The answer is no. Uh, the vaccines contain no fetal tissues. I showed you the vaccine contains mRNA and a lipid nanoparticle. However, I will say that the testing of the vaccines did use old cell lines that are fetal derived from decades ago. So I think, again, I want to make sure that people understand there is not fetal tissue in the vaccines. It's not correct. But in order to test the vaccines, decades old cell lines, human cell lines were used. Again, they were derived literally 20, 30 years ago. The last question for you, John, is if after the first, if, if after the first dose of the, of the vaccine, the patient has COVID, should the second dose be given? I would fall back on the same recommendation, Juan. We know that some there's going to be some people incubating COVID who happen to get the vaccine, right? You're incubating it. You don't know. You get immunized. Oh, you're sick two days later with real COVID. We would have the same recommendation. Wait till you're better. You have no fever. You're better. You don't feel sick. And then get your second dose. And again, if there's a week where it deviates from the 21 or 28 days by four to seven days, it's just not a big deal. So we would wait until you're better from your COVID and then get your second dose. And then the last question for you, John, is that if, if people don't develop side effects of the vaccine, does that mean the vaccine didn't work? Not at all. Uh, you know, I think it depends on who you are as a person and your age, by the way. It depends on the age of, of side effects. So absolutely not. There's no correlation. And it's been looked at by Pfizer and Moderna. No correlation with whether you didn't feel well, you got nauseous, you didn't get nauseous, or you had muscle aches, you didn't, with being immune. Um, and so the answer is it's not correlated. And, um, and just one last comment. Uh, there, was, there was a question about the monoclonal antibodies. We, we, we are using them. We've given uh, three doses <clears throat> at Connecticut Children's. Four now. Uh, they're uh, they're four now. widely available. And if you have patients who meet the criteria, please send them our way. This is really, really helpful therapy. Um, and if you, if you or someone you know is, uh, has a risk factor over the age of 65 and are diagnosed with COVID, please get in quickly to get this monoclonal. 
which is done as a uh, hospital-based outpatient therapy. Very, very helpful, very useful, un- grossly underutilized at this point. So, Mel, thank you. John, thank you for a great presentation. Thank you, all 225 of you who joined this uh, meeting this morning. It continues to be very popular. We appreciate it. We appreciate our colleagues in Danbury that log in for their Grand Rounds. Uh, and thank you again for joining. We'll see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and a week from today for the next uh, Ask the Experts series. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye. <laughs>